0: Hello and welcome to The Weekend Wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your co-host for this very special episode. My name is Ben Davison and I am joined by the great, the glorious, the host of In Conversation with Van Battam. <laughs> Van Battam. How are you, Van?
1: Well- We've been
0: sick. We got a bug. Yeah, we did get a bug. And thanks to everyone who set their solidarity across the course of the week. Uh, we have had a bit of work-related travel. Uh, we've had some timing issues. And then, of course, we got this bug, which meant we didn't get a Wednesday episode out. And so you have joined me for this extended edition of The Weekend Wrap.
1: I'm just going to sit here being gorgeous to bring sunshine to your life. (laughs) I can't move because the dog is at a really strange angle on my leg, and if I move at all, it could all get very pear-shaped.
0: Yes, indeed. Germanicus is very happy that we are home. Look, on today's episode, we are going to talk about the referendum. We're going to talk about some of the quite explosive revelations that have come out during the week and on Insiders Today in relation to that referendum. Uh, about the uh, no position. We're going to talk a little bit about a few things that happened in Parliament this week because, of course, it was the first parliamentary sitting since the winter break. Also, Van, there's this contest of ideas is happening right now around workplace relations, industrial relations reform, the rights of workers, and there's been some very interesting developments in that space that we'll talk about. And as well, there's been... Some big campaign news with both the Australian Education Union and the Transport Workers Union launching campaigns. One to make sure that every child gets a quality education, public education, and gets the funding they need to do that, and the other to make sure that each and every road user gets to their destination safely, both of which seem like pretty worthwhile causes to me.
1: Yes. So hands up who thinks people should die at work and hands up people who think children should not be
0: educated properly
1: because if you do have your hand up, you're not a good person, and I've got my
0: eye on you. You're probably also a member of Dutton's No Elishan Party Room. Uh, however, let's focus on the The Venn overlap thing. <laughs> is very strong. Let's focus on the first thing first. So GAMA is happening right now uh, in the Northern Territory. This is an annual event. It's a massive gathering. Uh, it has some pretty significant political connotations because it is a place where uh, Aboriginal uh people do uh, discuss the issues that impact them. They discuss uh, issues of culture. Uh, they discuss issues of economic development. And increasingly over the years, we've seen more people uh, attend gamma, who are not from uh, an Aboriginal community, but who are political leaders, business leaders, union leaders. I know Michelle O'Neill, uh, president of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, for example, is at GAMA, uh, to hear what Aboriginal people have to say and to listen. And, of course, Anthony Albanese, Prime Minister of Australia, is there at the moment listening uh, and has addressed uh, the, the GAMA uh, gathering and, Van, this comes on the back of a week where it has been exposed that Peter Dutton's no are fundamentally only opposing the voice for political gain.
1: I find it amazing this is news to anyone. What, did people <laughs> really think that the coalition under Peter Dutton, Peter Dutton, not Malcolm Turnbull, not Simon Birmingham, Peter Dutton sat down and went oh, yeah, well, you know what's our really nuanced position on this? How can we actually come up with a political position that is the best thing for Australia? Do you genuinely believe that that's what Peter Dutton thinks? No, Peter Dutton thinks, I want to be Prime Minister, I want to be Prime Minister now, I want to be Prime Minister as soon as possible. How do we create as much tumult and problems for this government as possible so we can do exactly what Tony Abbott did against Brad and Gillard and go, oh, the government's dysfunctional, Ah, the government and some popular, the government, the government, the government. The only solution is Australia needs Tony. Remember that on the front page of the Murdoch papers? Australia needs Tony to end the dysfunction that we caused and we're back there. Of course they're opposing the voice, not for any particular reason, although I do suspect perhaps there might be one or two, shall we say, prejudicial tenets in the particular movement of the organised right in Australia that might be affecting their position on this. But certainly from Dutton, Dutton doesn't care if Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people live in poverty, close the gap, don't close the gap, gap opens gap, gets bigger, gap, gets smaller. He's all about raw power for Peter Dutton. Yeah. So the fact that this was even been reported, I just find hilarious and people are like, oh, it's shocking it's a cynical political move.
0: Well, I, I think part of the reason it was reported, and it was actually reported in the boss's pamphlet, It was a leaked text message from one coalition MP uh, during Wednesday's uh, question time uh, that went to uh, a journalist at the boss's pamphlet. One suspects that the boss's pamphlet has run this story partly as recompense for them running the ad which attacked uh, the CEO of Wes Farmer's as well as Allegra Spender. People might remember that horribly racist, sexist, uh, antiquated uh, ad. Oh, that,
1: yes, with the, the <clears throat> completely racist depiction of Thomas Mayo. Yeah, that
0: that that uh, the boss's pamphlet ran uh, and really didn't apologise for.
1: I don't think uh, it was Allegra Spender. I think it was the member for Curtin who is the daughter of the CEO. Of
0: oh, Australia. yes. No, apologies. You're right. You're right. Um, uh, it wasn't Allegra Spender. Uh the issue, though, Van, that, been, that I'm, I'm trying to get to here is that this, this piece by the boss's pamphlet, I suspect, is partly because, you know, at the end of the day, I call it the boss's pamphlet, the Australian Financial Review. I call it the boss's pamphlet because it represents the interests of bosses, not. The interests of the Liberal Party, and what Peter Dutton has done is that he has, in his attempts to blow up the government, he has turned his guns on anyone and everyone. So he has he, he has attacked uh, large corporations. He has attacked any organisation that has supported the Voice, uh, and and the No campaign has done things like run that really terrible ad. Now that's bad for the boss's pamphlet that relies on the Bosses paying for advertising, paying for subscriptions. So it's a very interesting move. I it's
1: mean, not cheap to subscribe to the Bosses pamphlet no, either.
0: Can I just say? Of all of the publications in Australia, I think it's probably the most expensive daily uh, to subscribe to. But it does show that there is, there is a tension, right, and we've talked about this before between the sort of far right and the centre right, Dutton's, Party believes, and this is a quote: "We can't win the election unless we defeat the Voice solidly, i.e., we need to defeat it to get to the election starting line." That's their starting position. They believe they've got to cause that dysfunction. Now it goes, and 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 the depth of how low they're prepared to go extends to lying about things like gamma. So on Insiders today, uh, it was revealed that. Uh, Dutton and Jacinta Price were invited by the Othi Indy Foundation to attend Gama. Dutton declined to go to Gama. He has said that he wouldn't be accepting an invitation from Anthony Albanese or the government to go. That's not who offered him the invitation. let has been really clear here. Even something as simple as who actually invited him, who organises these things, is being muddied up is being made into a political weapon so that Peter Dutton can try and score political points. It's Disgraceful, And it's also why it's so important that people are campaigning. And we've seen this, you know, I'm sure on your social media it's the same as mine, that, yes, there are trolls, yes, there are bot farms operating, but there are actual... A
1: lot of Russian accents in the uh, anti-voice material that I'm seeing on my timeline, just saying a lot of Americans who seem particularly invested in
0: this issue. But there's a lot of photos of a lot of real people, a lot of real Australians from all walks of life from all sorts of backgrounds who are campaigning, who are holding up yes banners and yes placards and handing out at train stations. And I want to give a shout-out here to the union movement because the Australian union movement got on board the referendum really early on, and Unions for Yes uh, is a really powerful force for good in this referendum. There are union members from all sorts of unions, from all sorts of backgrounds, doing that work, knocking on doors, making calls, handing out at train stations. And, you know, you can go to yes.org.au and you can become a volunteer there. But, of course, if you're not already a union member, you can go to australianunions.org.au slash WOW, that's W-O-W, what does that stand for? Week on Wednesday. And you can join via our very special link. Look, it's so important that we all get behind this Noel Pearson said this week that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people make up 3% of the Australian population. They can, and, and this is Noel Pearson saying this, that they cannot win this referendum by themselves, that they need white fellas to step up and to help win this referendum. And, and he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right.
1: And it was very interesting this week as well, a prominent Aboriginal leader from Western Australia who had been opposed to the voice mm-hmm. made an extremely rare public uh, reversal. Uh, people very rarely do this in public life. Yeah. People tend to get attached entrenched. The position, entrenched in the positions that they're defending. Anyway, this woman came forward and said, you know, I was wrong. This is really important and it's not perfect and no one is pretending that it's perfect, but it's a mechanism for change which should be embraced and publicly recanted their previous opposition and said that they would now be campaigning for the voice, which is fantastic. And there was also an awesome tweet from the rapper and writer Briggs Mm. who came out and said, you know, the question is not going to be, "Do you vote for the voice? Are you voting for the voice?" Yes, no, racist, no, progressive. Like it, the the progressive no case is in with the racists, and I know nobody wants to hear that. I'm sure everybody wants to talk about nuance, and you know, yeah. But that's not what's on offer. It's a binary choice. It's yes or no. And at the end of the day, if you exercise a no vote, you will be in with the racists. Ben and I always say the worst people you know are all voting no and lumping yourself in with them is all that history will remember there will be no nuance remembered on this point and briggs made the same point it's not perfect uh, there are all kinds of different ambitions for the realization of, of of aboriginal and torres Strait Islander empowerment in this country and fairness and justice and what that looks like but no one gets any of it if there's not a mechanism there to put the case yeah so thank you briggs for the most eloquent argument to the in inverted commas progressive no because i don't see how you can possibly get to that point with any kind of progressive analysis in a binary choice and good great awesome boots on the ground volunteer for a group get a t-shirt go to your train station have conversations because it is the real people who are changing minds, and it is the real people who are being adults. It is not perfect. Briggs is completely right, but, my God, it's a step
0: forward. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more, Van. It it really is, you know, and, look, we've seen the reactionaries react to that concept that it's a step forward and what will come next, and Spears tried to push our uh, elbow on Insiders today about, you know, where does treaty sit on your list of priorities, And it's always the cart before the horse. And we can't get sucked into that kind of debate because that narrative is where the Pauline Hansons of the world want this to get to. Their their narrative on this is where does it end?
1: Yeah, space
0: aliens. Well, they're, they're
1: Illuminati.
0: What they basically. Octopi with guns. What they basically want you to believe is that. That cats and dogs marrying each other, Labour will abolish property rights. That's fundamentally <laughs> like at the end of the day, they're kind of they're you know,
1: coming for the shop,
0: March. What, what, whatever, whatever intellectual basis, uh, exists in those movements, as, as small as it may be, it's fundamentally <laughs> which
1: Facebook group are we taking policy cues <laughs> from today?
0: It fundamentally boils down to Labour and progressives and uh, unions. Don't believe in property rights and they're going to come and take away your home.
1: I'm quite that's sure that's the, news to the teals, not that, to mention the overwhelming majority of Labor people. And yeah. it is
0: because it's not real, right? But that's where they go, Oh, a treaty will lead to then you will lose your backyard. And, and we're seeing some of that narrative played in places like Western Australia, where there are cultural heritage laws that say, look, if you're going to do a lot of digging on your farm, we want you to do just a quick, at least a quick analysis with the local Aboriginal community to make sure there are no historical cultural sites. This has been blown out of all proportion by segments of the billionaire and corporate-owned media and by the far right to make out as though every time a farmer puts in a fence post, he's gonna have to pay 10 grand to uh, an Aboriginal uh, cultural consultant, that's not true. That's not real. But that's where that's where the conspiracists go really, really quickly. I just find
1: it amazing because it's like, so a farmer is on. If a farmer is on land in Australia, if you have control of that much land, at some historical point. There was a contestation of ownership there and I don't necessarily think that the inheritance of that land is something that we can really put in a morally neutral category and that's a difficult conversation for all of us because Mm. we live in a reality that we do depend on farmers to farm land and farmers do own land. Like that's where we are. Point of the voice is to have a slightly more nuanced and sophisticated conversation about it, so we don't get down into binaries of your genocidal land stealers and you're coming in the middle of the night to destroy property rights. I think we have to move beyond that as a society to say things that are inclusive, representative, practical,
0: and exist in the real world. And can I just say, if we don't move beyond the that kind of. Uh, conflict-laden narrative, Uh, you know, this once, as Albanese said, this is a -a once-in-a-generation opportunity, the voice, the referendum, to do something that will re-establish Australia as a a 65,000-year-old continent of many different voices. And if we don't take that opportunity, only need to look at the kinds of upheavals that, do occur where populations are oppressed for a long time, where these conversations are not allowed to take place. What happens in those societies? And, you know, this is an extreme example. But if we're going to talk about what extremists are saying on the other side, you know, an extreme example would be somewhere like Zimbabwe, where you have all the white farmers effectively kicked off their land. You have acts of violence. None of this, by the way, do I agree with or suggest is in any way associated with our situation. But you've got to take into account that there are historical contexts here and trying to pretend that if we ignore them or if we say Aboriginal people simply don't have any rights or shouldn't have any rights or shouldn't have any say or that our constitution is equal to all people uh, even though how it was structured and written doesn't actually make it equal to all people, then you create an intrinsic structural conflict uh, and that that can play out in a really dangerous and negative way. I always say, Van, you you know, I love love the word commonwealth. We are a commonwealth and if we think about it in those terms, then we know what the right thing to do is and that is to build the commonwealth for all.
1: I also think we've got a unique... Cultural privilege in this country that Australia has always been many nations. We are a continent of many, many nations. And that predates the arrival yeah. and invasion by white people here. And it's that understanding that you can, you can have layers of, you, you can have layers to a place. It's like, I don't refer to the city of Melbourne as Nam. I refer to the land as Nam, and Mel- Melbourne is a city. It is a different construct that exists on land that predates it and lives beneath it, and exists as you know a geological, environmental, you know, miracle. And you can actually be in two places at once, the construct of a city and a a country that it's on. You can acknowledge another culture and live in your own. That is the entire point of multiculturalism is to understand that we can be many different places and many different people at the same time. To discuss that nuance, we need mechanisms for representation and inclusion mm. and hearing people. It's actually richer for all of us. The idea that this referendum is in part being debated by people in Facebook groups talking about how the voice is going to stop flight paths, yeah. I've got to say, Ben, is pretty disappointing.
0: It is disappointing. Look, there's still a long way to go. Uh, the official date hasn't been announced yet. Um, I suspect it may well be announced before uh, the end of Armor. That's the sort of thing I might do if I was Prime Minister. Uh, but who knows, it may well not be announced until the end of the parliamentary sitting week uh, next week. But Van, talking about parliamentary sitting weeks, we've had the first sitting week back since the winter break. Uh, a couple of big things have happened. Uh, the first is uh, family and domestic violence leave is now available to all employees, including those in small business. Small business was originally given a six-month uh, window to get itself organized. Uh, for this, there was a big launch in Parliament House early in the week. So from the 1st of August, if you are in a small business and you need to access that leave, your employer needs to have provisions for you to do that. Again, another great win by the Labour movement, unions working with their political arm, the Labour Party, to improve the working lives of people in this country. Also, there have been changes to the social wage van. Now, I have no doubt that there will be some people who are disappointed in these changes because we know that there are some people who want, uh, who want an entirely different type of structure well, what we have in this country is a structure where you get Bens talking about welfare by the way yeah Well, I call it the, I call it the social wage right because it is I I don't think of it as welfare it is a social wage it is the it is what we do to ensure that people can have some participation in our society and in our Commonwealth that's why it's called the social wage in my view this is a term that was popularised in the 80s with Hawke, Keating, Kelty, that there is a trade-off, there was a trade-off that working people would forego wage claims for improvements in the social wage, including... What people call welfare payments, but also things like superannuation, Medicare, uh, improvements to access in higher education. These are not things. I think sometimes people in Australia forget that these are not things that have always been in place. Uh, no, have not always been universal. They have in fact been fought for and won. So the improvements in the social wage that come into these will come into effect in September. They were passed this week job seeker will go up by 56 dollars a fortnight uh, which is a substantial substantial amount of money uh, there'll also be uh increases uh in rent assistance uh so the the this is the largest increase in rent assistance in uh, australia's uh recent history uh it's 15%. That's 1.1 million households will be better off by $24 a fortnight. Uh, and there's a higher rate, you know, if you're a person under uh, the age of 55, you may not be aware of this, but there is a higher rate for people over the age of 60 who find themselves uh, in unemployment.
1: Because structuralized ageism keeps people out of the workforce.
0: Yeah, and they are often in long-term unemployment. So this is, you know, a year or more. The, the boundaries around that have changed. So instead of having to wait till you're 60 and having to have been unemployed for a year, that higher rate will kick in at 55 and will be a nine-month uh, window that you'll have to have been unemployed for because that structural ageism does impact people. Uh, and, of course, we've spoken before about the fact that there are uh, changes that will move uh Tens, if not hundreds of thousands, of people uh, over the course of the next four, five, six years, from job uh, seeker payments into parenting payments, which have uh, lower requirements in terms of activity to look for work or do training, so you can focus more time on caring, but also at paid at a higher rate as well. This is a this is a package of improvements to the social wage. Uh, does it totally fix all of the elements of the social wage? Well, obviously it doesn't because it doesn't go into some of the education pieces. There are other work going on there. But I think it's a great thing that it passed the House. Again, Dutton opposed this, right? Dutton, Dutton voted against it. The Greens tried to amend it, failed, but did eventually vote for it. But the Noelitian voted against it because they don't want, this is their view, their view is they don't want to see taxpayer money go to support these particular people who at this particular moment may not be taxpayers, even though they may have been in the past, even though with any luck they will be again in the future.
1: And the sickening, and I've written about this. I mean, you and I have both been on the dole in our time. I mean, I, was in, I lived in Wollongong for years, which yep. has a structuralized unemployment problem because employment in Wollongong was based on industry and when those industries got globalised, the physical city didn't have the jobs to offer people. You know, when I was on the dole, the youth unemployment rate in Wollongong was 20%, which is kind of extraordinary. And it was really, really tough and really brutal. And, by the way, it's not character building. Being on the dole is no. not character building. Since the 70s and the studies that Mick Young did, we learn about a condition called hysteresis, which is essentially unemployment created uh, a paralyzing depression where you get cut off from society because you're not in a productive capacity, you're marginalised by a system that blames you for your own misery and essentially psychologically shut down. I mean, that is the... Yeah. For
0: people who are overwhelmingly in that situation, and it's part of the reason why it's so important that we do have a focus on getting people into employment. You know, or education, or education, so that they 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 do have that uh, social connection and, and are part of our commonwealth. You know, we've talked about this again and again and again. We are in a wonderful economic position in many ways as a nation. I know there are a lot of uh, households struggling because of inflation, because of the high priests of the RBA jacking up the price of everything on top of the profiteers jacking up the price of everything. But nation- nationally, we have very low levels of unemployment, uh, which Keynes will tell, tell us means that we need targeted interventions to support those who most need support, uh, not have, large-scale blanket rises in things like job seeker payments. Um, $56 a fortnight, by the way, is one of the largest increases in job seeker uh, payments in the last two decades. So th- these are uh, these are targeted interventions. Uh, these are consistent with a Keynesian approach that says, let's get people into employment. Let's focus on those programs that will help people make that transition. And when there are barriers that make it harder, let's have programs to remove those barriers.
1: I mean it's a it's a much bigger and broader conversation but this is why I'm so opposed to the idea of universal basic income because this idea that oh we'll just give people don't have to work and we'll just give people money and it'll all be fine does absolutely nothing to get rid of structuralized barriers to work around things like age. In fact it incentivizes employers to not fix any barriers at all because if everybody's is getting paid to not work, then where is the social responsibility in creating access and opportunity? As a feminist, you can imagine the hundreds of years of women trying to get access to education in the workplace is somewhat set back by creating a, a perverse incentive to just maintain the barriers to their employment, which is why I, I find that whole philosophical school around UBI kind
0: of disgusting. I have to say, as... Uh, as, you know, straight white male, um, the the conversations that I've seen uh, in the disability sector uh, echo what you're saying, Van, that people want more opportunity to actively participate in the workforce to get the economic freedom that that brings. Uh, you know, and when, when we say this, you know, we're talking about a workforce uh, that is well unionized we're talking about workplace rights that are well established we're talking about wages that are absolutely fair and equitable that's the kind of workforces uh, workplaces we're trying to build so we need to be really conscious about that there'll be a lot of people out there who go oh but you know bosses are terrible and the workplace can be awful and there's no question the workplace can be an awful place
1: and that's why we join and form unions and mobilize in our workplaces in order to have power in those workplaces and determine our conditions within the system in which we live i don't know if this is a bit of a dead giveaway for everybody but i'm quite honest about the fact that i am a marxist i am a marxist researcher i see the world in marxist terms and for people who like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm better. I don't like opposers, UBI. And, uh, spoiler alert with Marxism, it's about work. It's about labour, L-A-B-O-U-R, is kind of the whole, that's the framework, is the productive relations into which people are born or enter involuntarily. Just to quote a bit of E.P. Thompson, one of my favourite Marxist historians, um, on, on the side. And this is, I mean, as a Marxist feminist, you can imagine the idea that, you know, women get social opportunity for experience, for education, for skills development, for power, for economic independence from... accessible well-regulated workplace and of course this applies to everyone you know marginalization is about your relation to productive relations where you work how you work whether you get to work what you get paid to work what your conditions are at work what power you have in the workforce you know where you occupy a position in a system of economic relations. And Ben and I crusade for everybody to be empowered within that process. I don't use the term social wages. I mean, I do sort of interchangeably, but I spent my formative years in Britain where, of course, my language for understanding uh, welfare comes from the five pillars of the welfare state. The idea that there are five things that government does that holds up everybody, pillars, that is paying the doll, ensuring there are pensions, public housing, social housing, housing development – education and skills development training and opportunities and also universal healthcare and when I think about you know, social wages, it's about thinking about all five of those pillars and how they interact, why protecting superannuation is important, why fighting for decent pensions is important, why having an accessible workplace is important how important education and health, there are different aspects of those pillars that affect different individual lives and different community lives yeah. and our policy perspective is to look at the intersection of all of them
0: yeah absolutely and i think it also speaks to why the voice is so important as well right because they are all different pillars and they are different communities at different times um have different heights on those pillars and and for some communities some of those pillars are quite short you know and and that we need to help them Lift them, lift them up. Uh, so, look, I think it's, I think it's a fascinating thing, and we will talk a bit more about some of the work that's being done. Uh, around, uh, making the workplace better. But I just want to, I want to wrap up very briefly on what happened in parliament. And we're going to come back to the points around, uh, the workplace van. But because, of course, the housing policy has been, uh, reintroduced into the parliament. Uh, and this is a potential double dissolution trigger. I don't want to spend too long on this because it's only been reintroduced to the house. Uh, I will make a note and, and I can see you're raring to go on this one as well, but I will make a note that, uh, Interestingly, this week Sarah Hansen Young was quoted as being in charge of the negotiations with the Albanese government around the housing affordability future fund. Uh, there's a lot of chatter about this. Look, if it doesn't pass the Senate uh, next week, which is when I think it will be due, uh, it does give Anthony Albanese a double dissolution trigger. For those who don't know what that means, basically, if a bill doesn't, if a government bill doesn't pass twice. The government has an option to go to an early election for both houses of parliament. Doesn't mean it has to exercise it, uh, and there are there are essentially timelines. But if the trigger comes into play, that is Albanese can pull it. He'll be able to pull it any point from when the bill fails to pass the Senate the second time, through till I think March twenty twenty four. So that's plenty of time for him to make that decision. That would spill the entire Senate. Normally, Senates are spilled half at a time. uh, That would spill the entire Senate. And then after the double dissolution election, the idea is there has to be a joint sitting of both houses to come back together and consider the bill uh, that caused the double dissolution, right? The idea being that either the people will have given the government the mandate to pass the bill or there will be a new government uh, that will scrap the bill entirely. That's That's the concept.
1: And let's be very clear... Governments do not decide to go to double dissolutions unless they're pretty confident of increasing their numbers.
0: And, and let's be also really honest about the recent historical trends: say that governments that do go to double dissolutions uh, lose seats in the lower house. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull lost seats in the lower house when he triggered a double dissolution uh, in 2016, uh, and he, but he did get a different Senate makeup. You need to get a slightly more favourable Senate makeup, uh, which is sometimes a reason to do these things. So it's a very, it'll be very complex. The Housing Affordability Fund uh, was punted into the long grass by the Greens, $1.3 million a day worth of housing not being rolled out the door. It's pretty disgraceful, well, it's totally disgraceful. Uh, Shovel-ready projects not being shoveled. We'll see how this plays out this week, and I think you and I have a lot more to say about it come Wednesday because there'll be a lot more uh, there'll be a lot more movement one way or another.
1: And I just want to acknowledge how like. <laughs> It is really important in terms of representation on these issues. The Prime Minister grew up in public housing. The Housing Minister, Julie Collins, also grew up in public housing. So did Peter Khalil, who's the member for Wills. And the idea that you have people who had that experience of relying on uh, public housing to live, to be Mm. sheltered in the government Speaking to this policy, advising on this policy, arguing for this policy actually makes a big difference. I mean, there's not theoretical issues for people. There is nothing more material than your housing situation. And if you've had that experience of housing marginalisation and you are in a government and you are speaking to that experience and you are arguing, advocating for a policy that will help people immediately from the moment it's passed – I think that should have a lot more credibility than people who have never had the experience yeah. of material marginalisation in that way. And congratulations if you've had a solidly middle-class life with your super stable family and no experience of unemployment or homelessness or all of those things. Good on you. Didn't you get like a, a, a life lottery win in that case? But maybe, just maybe, when all... All the peak bodies representing people in public and social housing in this country and advocating around against homelessness are saying, pass the bill. Maybe that means something. Ben, what do you reckon?
0: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I've spoken before on this show and in other places uh, about my own experiences of housing instability. Uh, I've spoken about working with people who are experiencing uh, homelessness and housing instability. and it, it does. It does make you very angry to see people who don't have that experience, who have not worked in those sectors, um, grandstand oh. uh, and 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 use language that is not true to try and win a political point. You know, yes, there are risks in the stock market, and yes, not every year will a future fund deliver ten percent returns. But over the long term, as Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund clearly shows us...
1: Gosh, that's interesting, Ben, because I thought they loved the Sovereign Wealth Fund. These I are, thought the Greens love the Sovereign Wealth are, Fund in
0: Norway. These are good mechanisms for sustainable funding of ongoing infrastructure and asset-based public programs, which is what public and social housing is. It's an infrastructure and asset-based program, Right. This is not, you know, I'm a, I'm I'm a card carrying member of the Labor Party, but let me tell you, this is not new by the Labor Party. They have not come up with this. This is not some idea that Julie Collins and uh, Anthony Albanese have magicked up to create this mechanism to create the Housing Affordability Future Fund. It's actually been done in many other places, in in many other jurisdictions, and in fact, we do it. With many other parts of government recurring uh, funding, you know this is this is an established mechanism. The difference here is that it's a mechanism that removes the political whimsy from the housing portfolio. It removes the capacity for the coalition when they eventually do get back into power. Whether it's a liberal national coalition, or whether it's some new weird group of, you know, free marketeering Clive Palmerists. Who become the government. Dear there's God, always- I don't think
1: anything has inspired more put po- Australian political terror in here, in me, than free marketeering Clive Palmerists. That is literally <laughs> the most terrifying description I've ever heard. Well done, Ben There is No al- sleep tonight.
0: There's always in this country been two political parties: the Labour Party and, and the- everyone else. And the not Labour parties. And eventually the not Labour parties do win government. And in fact, at the Commonwealth level, the not-Labour parties are more often in than Labour is. So it makes us... they're
1: prepared to do literally anything, as, like sink a referendum on The Voice to get closer to power, like other people be damned, the truth be damned, oh, the ideological back and forth be damned.
0: So, you know, we absolutely want to see that passed. Everybody wants to see that passed, except for the noelition, Pauline Hanson, and the Greens, which is... An interesting addition to that particular coalition. But Van, talking about political truth be damned, I think we need to talk about the debate around workplace relations, industrial relations, conditions at work because this is Because
1: a- Ben watched Innes Willicks at the National Press Club, and isn't he in a state about it?
0: Let me just say this, right? So, I, so who
1: is Innes Willicks, Ben?
0: Innes Willicks is the uh, is the head of the Australian Industry Group, which is a large uh, peak body, i.e., lobby group for. Very large businesses, often in mining, uh, uh, in mining, in manufacturing. uh, Mining and things to
1: do with mining. Australian capitalism.
0: Defence industries, uh, a little bit in some other industries, but but mostly – Mostly mining. Uh, m- mostly in those kind of traditional areas. Mining also has another group called the uh, Minerals Resource Council of Australia or something now. They've been running ads, right, against the Labor government's position on same job, same pay. Uh, Innes had a press club speech, which quite frankly added nothing to <laughs> the political debate. <collective, right? laughs> Uh, it was genuinely... I mean, it added hot air. Yeah, look, I mean, yeah, increased the carbon emissions in Canberra probably. Uh, the reality is I've, I have uh, known of and known Innes Willocks for nearly a decade uh, and I have seen Innes willicks speak on industrial relations uh, numerous times uh, and not one thing that he said in this press club speech of 2023 is any different to a press club speech that he could have given in 2013. (laughs) These are the same tired tropes, the same tired lines about quote-unquote productivity, about quote-unquote innovation, about uh, attacking working people, about doing – about basically – the bosses lobby knowing what's in the best interest of the country, even over and above the will of the majority. And i give you, I give you some examples, Van, because Innes says there's been no profit boom, no profit boom, you know, the, that all of this kind of narrative about profiteering and profit booms is just, just wrong. Sally it's McManus, just wrong. Just wrong. It's
1: oh, just I Innes Williams have declared it to be just wrong. It's
0: just wrong. You know, So Sally McManus, head of uh, the ACTU, uh, who I suspect was watching uh, as well because there was quite a few tweets coming up from her account uh, as Innes was giving his speech, pointed out some of the half-year profits <laughs> of just some of the AIG's biggest members. The Commonwealth Bank of Australia, $5.15 billion dollars. Half-year profit. How much, Ben? $5.15 billion Mm. half-year profit, uh, which, by the way, is half of the Housing Affordability Fund just in a six-month period that they've raised as profit. As profit, Coles has had a 17% increase in its profit. How much? 17% increase in profit. Oh, God. Woolworths 14% increase in profit. Now I get that maybe they've managed to somehow or another buck what is globally recognised to be the trend of incredibly terrible and not very good at their job Australian managers, <laughs> and found some people who can deliver these profits through some kind of miraculous process reform and improvement. Uh, However, I don't know if you've been to a Colesville or Woolworths lately, it seems more and more dystopian every time I go. <laughs> so that doesn't seem to be the likely solution. What does seem to be a solution is that they're squeezing Squeezing their supply chains, squeezing their workers. And we'll talk about their supply chains shortly for those uh, supermarkets in particular. Qantas, a $1.4 billion profit. How much? $1.4 billion half year profit. Uh, so anyone who's flown Qantas recently will know that that's clearly coming out of the pockets of every worker and every person who is dares, obliged to catch a flight. dares to try and check a bag and play Russian roulette. Will my bag actually end up in Russia this week? Santos, the, uh, massive, uh, resource extraction company. Ah, uh, resource extraction. 2.1 billion, 2.1 billion dollar half year profit. Uh, Amphole, uh, nearly a half a billion dollar profit. Every time you got to put petrol in your tank, Amphole is one of the companies who's getting a, ben- a benefit from that. And BHP, whose profit is not only incredibly large, but is measured in U.S. dollars because so many of their investors are now foreign investors. BHP, once known as the Big Australian... Mm, interesting. Measures its profit in U.S. dollars. I
1: mean, this is a company that really understands multiculturalism. Yes, yeah. we can be many places at once, comrade.
0: Yeah, indeed. Uh, there's no country they won't dig a hole. Six point six billion U.S. dollars. <laughs> we have a winner in us. We have a winner. You know, this- and
1: they're all members of the AIG.
0: Indeed, they are AIG members. His actual members. Indeed.
1: I'd love to know what the total of that is. It's a Sunday morning, so my arithmetic is is not
0: quite Write in and let us know if you've managed to to work it out. But look And it,
1: then literally stands there and go, Oh, this profit thing, it's a lie. Yeah. yeah.
0: Here are some quotes. I don't think you're right there, buddy. Here are some quotes. The recent erosion of real, real wage rates driven by inflation is not due, as some would argue, to the systemic failure of our labour arrangements. Wage rates have recently lagged the sudden and unexpected price increases because of the inherent inertia in annual wage setting and multi-year agreements. We all hope the recent signs of abating inflation are real, but sadly it needs to be reiterated that driving wages up with no productivity trade-offs will only increase all our pain. He's All called, our pain. He's called on the government for sustain uh, to address the sustained drop in productivity growth to fix the associated slowdown with growth in real wages. This is the biggest load of Codswallop. <laughs> but, you know, the sad thing is it's the same bucket of Codswallop this man's been carrying around for a decade. The There are graphs, there are charts, there are... There are spreadsheets, there are numbers and stats b- beyond count now that show this to be an ideological nonsense. But when a well groomed man in a suit that costs more than your car stands <laughs> at the National Press Club and uses language that shows off his group of eight university education, it makes it sound believable. When the reality is that not only, not only <laughs> Has inflation continuing to go up? This is labor, sorry, productivity continuing to go up, labor productivity continuing to go up. Wage growth has lagged labor productivity. That means workers are not getting an increase in wages aligned to the increase in productivity. And why is that? Because after a decade of Morrisonism, workers' power has been eroded. It Because of a decade of profiteering, that money has been transferred to those companies. And, you know, you could go, well, Ben, you might well say that, and Sally Manish might well say that. Van Adam who on this very episode of this very show – has admitted to being a Marxist, may well say that. I
1: am a Marxist. I am not ashamed. I will stop being a Marxist when Marx stops being right.
0: You know who's not a Marxist?
1: Innis Willings.
0: Matthias Cormann. <laughs> Former Morrison government finance minister. Comes to none of the Matthias Cormann, yeah. not a Marxist. The OECD... Of which I believe he is the general secretary. I believe so. Yeah, I believe he is the general secretary. Has put out a nice little infographic which I will put on our social media channels, which is for about which is about the year 2023. And it shows that the that the cumulative change of unit labor costs and unit profits, that is how much more profit there has been versus how much more wages there have been uh, in OECD countries, and this little infographic very, very clearly shows that Australia has had a 26.1% increase in profits, 26.1% increase in profits, yet less than half that for wages. Now, that is well and truly above the OECD average. In fact, it places the disparity in this country in the top three of the OECD. You know, Poland is above us. Uh, Sweden is above us. A country that, by the way, has recently elected its first uh, ultra-right national government. You know, we we are trailing Japan, France, Italy, Spain. We're trailing the US. In the US... They actually had uh, wage growth outstrip profits, the home of capitalism. So no wonder Innes is all in a flap and a state, because you know this is this is the debate of of our time, of all time, of all history, right? And let me be really clear about this, because Van, you and I know this. Sally McManus knows this. Every union leader in the country knows this. Most genuine economists know this as well. But sometimes the media, the billionaire and corporate owned media, make it seem as though we are somehow on the fringes. We are in the minority. And it is the very well dressed and well fed gentlemen from the AIG who represent a majority position. So it's important that we drill down on that notion.
1: They just don't live in the reality that we do. So Ben and I were in Canberra once, doing some political stuff, and we got we ended up in a hotel that that either we got a cheap room I can't remember. This is years ago. It was either we got a cheap room or we got moved from our original hotel because Parliament was sitting. And we found ourselves in the breakfast room within a spillix. And I just remember sitting there and it was, it was like eight in the morning in full suit, like I'm barely, I think I yeah. still had half of my pyjamas on, is, as is my habit in hotels, and it's surrounded by other guys in suits, guys exclusively. Yeah. And I just remember sitting there going, and you know, we didn't interfere with his breakfast, no. all very polite, never be rude to somebody at breakfast, I no. think is a fundamental rule, even if they are your class enemy. But I just remember sitting there in this like ludicrously lovely hotel hotel I hit a spoon and thinking you would have no idea what the like what the median Australian experience is like if you are staying in hotels like this in your lovely suit surrounded by your friends and their lovely suits talking about things that people in suits talk about your idea of what is wealth or poverty or opportunity or engagement would be completely distorted. And this is what happens. They go into the chairman's lounge at Qantas, you know, they they fly business class everywhere because you've got to justify it's a business expense. Mm. They stay in the fancy hotels. You know, they're constantly at the business luncheons and everything is catered for them. And it is just a complete, it's a distortion field. To oh, it is. To quote, to quote Star Trek, it is an expanding improbability field that
0: they live in. It is an improbability field. And anyone uh, who cares to Google um, uh, Innes Willocks uh, and properties uh, will see lots of public reporting about him selling multi-million dollar apartments uh, in different parts uh, of the country. But Van is so disconnected because there's been, just this week, uh, the master that you write for, The Guardian, uh, published polling from 12 seats in Queensland and Western Australia. These are well, Western Australia. They can
1: be a bit tiger country. They
0: can be a bit tiger country, um, and, and particularly in Queensland. of people support changing workplace laws to better protect workers from wage theft. 65% support increasing the minimum wage. 56% support... closing labour hire loopholes that allow employers to keep wages low through outsourcing. This is one of the things that we've talked about on the show many times BHP has done to its immense profit. BHP openly says closing that loophole will cost them $1.5 billion because it's the money they'll have to pay to workers that they should be paying now. They have legalised wage theft, these people. Um, they also There's also majority support for regulating the gig economy, which we know... Which we know is dominated by sham contracting um, and uberized platforms, uh, and there's also, you know, more people uh, support the idea that uh, unions should be able to negotiate higher wages by around twenty percentage points than would vote for the Liberal Party uh, in this country. So, you know, these are these are good numbers for the case to improve workplace relations. The case for a rational improvement. You know, it, it's also it's also one of the questions I asked was about whether unions had too much power, the right amount, not enough, or unsure. Uh, and between too much power and about the right amount, sixty eight percent of Australians, sixty eight percent of Australians support I- unions being involved either at the level they are now or more involved. Uh, in our workplace,
1: I our note system. that uh, the numbers on uh, business leaders being, you know, determining
0: the uh, the schedule of change is uh, not quite so positive, Ben. Well, no, and uh, you know, this is the this is the thing, right? So we're talking we're talking here that fifty nine percent of people say a big business has too much power. <laughs> Uh, so you know that's twenty points more than uh, than, than unions, uh, and so only six percent, only six percent think that they don't have enough. So inus you know, only six percent, only six percent, which is actually less. Than- and
1: I bet I know where all those people eat breakfast when yeah. they stay in a hotel.
0: Yeah, yeah, because mm. yeah. that's less than the number. That's that's less than the percentage of Australians who vote for One Nation. <laughs> So, yeah, in fact, yeah, 8% are unsure around business. They don't know. And that's the number of people who vote for One Nation. So, you know, when you've got less support than One Nation for your ideas, which are debunked by every actual number, statistic, graph you care to put up, maybe it's time to sit down and shut up.
1: It's so funny because let me just give you an insight into our household. If I hear Ben making sort of nonverbal happy sounds, Ben is watching football. If I hear Ben make nonverbal angry sounds, Ben is watching a capitalist at the
0: National Press Club. They're just so out of touch. (laughs) It's just... It blows my mind every time that they get up and for the last decade, probably longer than that. But, you know, they, they just say the same, ideological nonsense. You know, the reality the reality in this country is the productivity problem is a capital problem. We have lazy capitalists who do not do not deploy capital in an effective way. No, Do they, not train people. They, they merely try to expand
1: up. their profit margins
0: by exploiting working people. And by jacking up prices. And that has been... It's time for that to end. The Labor government is working hard to end it. I look forward. I look forward <laughs> to the changes that these... The best form of capitalism is
1: some hard work.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Let's say that. I think that's right. Look, talking about hard work, Van, you know, this week I was very uh, fortunate to be in Canberra for the launch of the For Every Child uh, public schools funding campaign. Uh, I've been helping out the AU a little bit with that. They are running a national campaign on this. Uh, there's been some Incredible uh, work done. Also, can I just say, Jason Clare, as Minister for Education, is is doing some of the groundwork here around what do people expect, what's going on in education? Uh, because you went
1: to public school. And one
0: of the one of the things was a a survey. A public Imagine survey. a
1: housing minister who grew up in public housing and an education minister who went to public school.
0: So. 13 and a half, more than 13 and a half thousand Australians who are teachers or parents or carers in the public education system or in the education system, full stop. I don't think you had to be public. I think you could be anywhere in the education system, have said uh, that the most important factors to help educators improve student outcomes were to reduce teacher workload. S- nearly, nearly three quarters, 74% of people said they had to reduce teachers' workload. Uh Nearly two thirds, sixty-two percent, said we need more support to manage students with complex and diverse needs, uh, and another third said we need greater access to support staff. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch of other uh, metrics there as well, um, uh, suggestions there as well. But nearly three quarters of that thirteen and a half thousand sample said uh, we need to reduce worker t- uh, teacher workload. You know, and that. That really aligns with what the AU, the Australian Education Union, is calling for, which is to fund schools to their minimum level of funding so that teacher workloads are manageable, so that class sizes are manageable. Uh, 98% of schools in this country, public schools in this country, are not funded to the minimum level. Not funded, And I've talked about it before. Have I
1: mentioned that it's disgusting and sick? And I'd also like to mention when I was in England I worked as a learning support assistant mm-hmm. and it was a really good job. It was a good job because it was a meaningful job and I worked with kids who had emotional behavioural um, issues. Yeah. And supported them in mainstream classes and also supported them in special schools and in Britain, in where I was working, they had a very integrated understanding that sometimes the kids needed, they, they wanted to mainstream them, but the kids needed extra support. And I've got to say, like, I knew that my work was valuable because I was supporting a teacher as well as the students and providing that sort of extra level of support in the classroom, which made it easier for the other kids. To get the education they needed from their teachers. And just such a great opportunity, like a really good job for a young person.
0: Yeah. And look, there are, we need more people to go into teaching. And and sadly, you know, some of the numbers that the AU uh, have reported is that uh, 90% of principals reported shortages of teachers. Two-thirds of teachers say their workload has increased in the last year. Less than one in five are committed uh, to teaching until retirement. So less less than 20% of current teachers think that they'll be teaching by the time they hit retirement age.
1: And it's really sad. I mean, think about some of your favourite teachers from school who were lifers, yeah. who were absolutely vocationally aligned to the practice of teaching, who were wise and experienced and had taught so many kids they knew how to teach even more. You know, taking that kind of um, long-term experience and guidance and the kind of mentorship that that provides to other teachers out of the system is criminal.
0: Yeah, it's really shocking. And, and I think... You know, so this campaign launched on, uh, on Wednesday morning on the hill outside Parliament House. Uh, there was another launch in Adelaide on Friday. Uh, I know Jason Clare did come down and meet the teachers and principals in Canberra. Blair Boyer, who was the South Australian Education Minister, uh, met with the teachers. In Adelaide as well.
1: Also went to public schools and has a dad who's a public school teacher.
0: You know, these are important connections to make, but, of course, you need to support the campaign because the reality is 98% of public schools in this country do not get their minimum funding, do not get their minimum funding. Now, if I was to say that about hospitals, if I was to say that about roads, people would be up in arms. We need people to go to the foreverychild.au website and need you to sign up to the campaign because this is a political issue and i know for over a long time political parties have tried to depoliticize education and there is a there is a narrative that you know education is not political but it is it's a policy framework that has to be put in place to fund and support schools.
1: People get that Gonski never happened,
0: right? Well, I think this is the thing. I think a lot of people, because don't forget we've had a decade of lies. We've had a decade of Abbott and Morrison telling us that education funding was increasing, that they were delivering Gonski, and they haven't, and they didn't. And the master that you write for did a week-long series on how Gonski has not been delivered, because I think most people think it has. You know, because they see new buildings go up or they see these stories about private school largess. Uh and they and they don't see necessarily the strain and the stress that teachers are under because let's face it, as you said, these are vocationally driven people. I, I, I happen to be married to a vocationally driven person. <laughs> uh how's that working out for you? Well, look, you know, the reality is that people who are vocationally driven, and I'm sure there's some listening to this now. They do go above and beyond. But we cannot build a system of education on the basis that we will burn through people who come to that system with a vocation and a drive and a passion that will mean they do 20 extra hours a week of work, that they do do work every weekend and every holiday, uh, that they don't take time off, that they work late at night, because that means people leave the system. And, the, and what gets delivered in the system gradually declines over time and i say that at the same time as acknowledging that the public schools in this country outperform private schools they outperform when you take dollar for dollar what they what they have to work with they absolutely outperform. And it's because of those vocationally driven people.
1: I just, I always look at it and go, the thing with a vocationally driven person is they're a treasure. Yeah. And the more, the more you deploy them to what they're driven to do, the more you get out of them. In fact, it's a it's a situation with it with teachers, with public school teachers, people who go into that system going, I am going to teach. I've heard my calling loud and clear. What you will get out of that person, if they are properly supported, if they have a manageable workload, if they have learning support assistance and a system that's integrated so they can, you know, teach at different levels and accommodate diversity within their classes, manage complex problems and the rest of it,
0: the
1: the productivity, to use a bit of a buzzword for this episode, will be extraordinary if you support that person. Absolutely. If you exploit that person you burn through treasure it's it's literally like setting money on fire yeah rather than, it's like it's exploiting a teacher is like setting money on fire rather than investing it
0: in future profitability That's right and you know our children are our future and every child should get the funding they need uh, for their school so that they can have the future that they deserve.
1: Give them all the opportunities they deserve, every child.
0: For every child. It's a really great campaign. I know they're rolling it out right around the country. Uh, I think, you know, it will come as a surprise, I'm sure, to some people uh, in the in the Labor Party. I mean, Michelle O'Neill was at the launch in Canberra uh, saying that the entire union movement stands with the uh, teachers' unions on this. You know, it's so fundamental, uh, and I think the Labor Party Needs to remember that it has to be the party of education and primarily the party of public education. Uh, the other thing, of
1: <laughs> course, no one else is going to
0: take because no job. one else is going to do it. No one else is going to do it. And like you know, I think the public sentiment is shifting. I mean, there were positive stories in the Australian, uh, the billionaire-owned rag that is Rupert Murdoch's uh, favorite propaganda piece about. Uh, the need... The Murdoch mirror. Yeah, about the need... Because it just
1: reflects what he wants to hear.
0: But about the need for smaller class sizes and support for uh, kids with complex and diverse needs. Uh, Look, Van, the other uh, campaign that I want to just briefly mention uh, was a a truck convoy. Part of the reason I want to mention it is because Obviously, during COVID, uh, we had these kind of spectacles of truck convoys uh, in Canada in particular and in sort of pseudo, not quite getting off the ground attempts here in Australia uh, from anti-vaxxers. Uh, but what we saw yesterday was genuine truck convoys of hundreds of trucks around the country converging on Canberra uh, to demand uh, better, uh, safer conditions and this is so important not just for truck drivers but for all of us because fundamentally if you're a road user and the person driving a truck who is a subcontractor of a contractor working for a uh, intermediary that supplies to a Coles or Woolworths you are on a road with someone who is under an immense amount of financial pressure who is under an immense amount of stress to try and get to their destination uh, in what is generally almost no flexible uh, time at all, they have to get there uh, and they have to do it sometimes in in ways that defy reality. You know, you defy the concept of people having to sleep or use the toilet or eat. And the reality for people is that it means people die, and and it's really. It's really quite shocking to say that, that we have a situation on our roads uh, where the Transport Workers' Union and their secretary, um, uh, Michael Kane has been really clear that people are dying on the roads uh, and that there is an increase in uh, gig economy uh, outfits in this space, that there is massive pressure on the drivers, uh, and he pointed to the fact that Scott's Transport, and we haven't talked much about this, but Scott's Transport is an intermediary company. It's a transport company, and it works between the growers or the importers uh, or the warehouses and the supermarket chains and the big retailers. This was a company with 500 trucks, Right. 500 trucks, and while the supermarkets are recording these massive profits, while Amazon and the warehouses are recording these massive profits, this company went under. It went under. So even though both ends of the supply chain are doing well, the people in the middle who are working the middle, who are driving the trucks, were absolutely being squeezed. And the idea that we're going to see even more uberfication in trucking, in parcel delivery, I think it's dangerous. Uh, it's been good to see that there are industry players who want to see change as well as the union on this. You know, And it just goes to show whether you're a teacher, whether you're a truck driver, whether you're a health worker, uh, whatever job you're doing, being in your union is the best way to make sure you have a safe workplace
1: slash wow
0: It's the best way to make sure that the policy settings that your workplace operates within are set in the favour of the working person. Because let me tell you, for a decade, they haven't been in transport and we are seeing huge pressures in that sector. And, and you know what that means too, Van? Can I just say, you know, people might be listening to this going, "Ah, oh, well, you know, I'm not a truck driver. I don't know any truck drivers or whatever. And that that may well be true. But what you do do is you rely on truck drivers. We all rely on truck drivers. Every single one of us, every single day does something, consumes something, buys something, engages with something that has travelled on a truck, It's just the nature of how our socioeconomic system works. You know, despite all of the Amazon drone delivery service promises and all the rest of it, at the end of the day, without trucks, Australia stops. So it impacts us. And quite frankly, I would rather see a slice of those profits that are currently going to Coles and Woolworths Uh, and its shareholders.
1: 17% for Coles, 14% for Woolworths, and that's just the half year lease.
0: Take three points off each of those. Let's give those to truck drivers. Let's fix that system so you don't have these incredibly complex, incredibly opaque subcontracting of subcontracting so that you don't end up with these gig arrangements where there is no job security. You have truck drivers who are driving, not because they want to be unsafe, but because of the pressure on them, the debt that they go into to own their truck, well, to own the mortgage on their truck in order to have this work, in order to try and keep a roof over the heads uh, of their families. These are these are real stories, and it's hard to hear. It's hard to hear that something we rely on so much is actually so exploitative of so many people. And it's not just in Australia. Uh, John Oliver did a really interesting expose on trucking in America where I have to say it is worse. It is far worse in, in most parts of America, but that should be a cautionary tale. And what the Transport Workers Union is doing is showing that we have to make better decisions at a policy level or we will end up in the kind of nightmarish scenarios that John Oliver uh, exposes uh, about the American uh, trucking and transport system. We all rely on it. Our food, our clothes, the microphone that we're using now, the computer that it's going into.
1: The dog's food. The
0: dog's food, all of it. Travels on trucks. That's what happens. Uh, so support the the Transport Workers Union. Support the AEU. You'll see lots of their stuff come out because uh, that's going to be a big, big campaign. We've covered a lot today, Van. We have. Normally the weekend wrap is a short, sharp rant from Ben. Instead, they got long, drawn-out rants from both Ben and Van. <laughs> So hopefully our listeners feel uh, as though you've uh, got your money f- money's worth from our free-to-download and free-to-listen-to podcast.
1: Certainly, and if you haven't listened to it already, I do recommend you listen to my interview with Miles Taylor, who was the Trump administration national security whistleblower, the one who was in the room when Trump was like, hey, why don't we just nu- nuke North Korea? And thought, you know, uh, I might be a lifelong Republican, but I've had enough. Somebody's <laughs> got to do something about this. It's such an interesting conversation and uh, – You know, and it's such a great opportunity for me as, you know, a Mm. good left-wing girl to have a conversation with somebody from the centre-right about democracy and how that's really in everybody's interest. And the the interview has had such a great response that I do really want people to
0: listen to it and talk about it. And don't forget to like, share. Uh, Don't forget you can go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. That will help support us. To grow our audience, we will break the million listener mark uh, before the end of September. I can guarantee it, but you can make it happen even sooner by helping other people find this podcast, to listen to this podcast, listen to vans. Uh, uh interview with Miles Taylor and of course Van and I will be back on Wednesday this week we've locked in the time nothing's going to shake us uh, even if we've got the uh, spicy cough we'll get on it might be a bit rough if we do but you'll hear from us again on Wednesday so until then as I like to say at the end of every weekend wrap be kind to yourself and to each other